Hey guys, Future Nate here. So earlier this week, I had to take my setup apart to record some other content, and when I put it back together, apparently OBS didn't select the right microphone to use when we went to record. And since that's never happened before, I didn't think to check it prior to recording. As such, my audio is pretty bad this week. I did my best to clean it up, but it's definitely far short of my usual quality, and I just wanted to let you guys know what happened, so you're not really blindsided when you start listening. The Q&A will also be like this as we film them both back to back. So I'm sorry about that, but please bear with me and I will make sure to get it fixed for next week. Thank you guys for understanding. Reddit is going public and selling your data along the way. Signal finally has usernames. iMessage is getting a post-quantum encryption update. Lockbit ransomware got taken down and much more. Welcome to Surveillance Port 168, where we are dedicated to keeping you private and secure with the latest news from the past week. I am Nathan from The New Oil. And I'm Henry from TechLore. As always. Friendly reminder, if you want to help support this podcast and keep us going, we have a Patreon. For $5 a month or more, you get to ask us a question on our weekly Q&A. For $10 a month or more, you do not have to listen to this promo segment and you get more of our analysis on these stories, more of our insight, thoughts, some jokes, that kind of stuff. If you are allergic to Patreon, totally understand. We also have LibrePay. You won't get any of the perks, but it will still be a recurring set it, forget it kind of thing. And of course, if you want the maximum amount of privacy and security, we accept Monero. So for those of you who support the podcast financially, we appreciate you and we thank you for keeping us going and making this possible. Our highlight story this week, Reddit is finally going public. And they say that so far they've made $203 million by licensing, quote unquote, its data. Quoting the article, in its IPO prospectus filed on the 22nd with the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, Reddit repeatedly emphasized how much it thinks it stands to gain and has gained from data licensing agreements with the company's training AI models on its over 1 billion posts and more than 16 billion comments. And this is what they wrote. In January 2024, we entered into certain data licensing arrangements with an aggregate contract value of $203 million and terms ranging from two to three years. We expect a minimum of $66.4 million of revenue to be recognized during the year ending December 31st, 2024, and the remaining thereafter. The article goes on to say it's a mystery as to which vendors are licensing data from Reddit so far. Earlier this week, Bloomsburg and Reuters reported that a, quote, large unnamed AI company, unquote, possibly Google, had entered into a licensing agreement worth about $60 million on an annual basis. OpenAI wouldn't be surprising either because Sam Altman has an 8.7 stake in Reddit, which makes him the third largest shareholder and was once a member of the company's board of directors. That's kind of the main story. My only takeaways here, first of all, I'm not going to lie, having been a Reddit user in the past, I'm kind of pissed about this because this is just, I'm sure I don't need to convince this audience, but the thing I always think of when I try to convince people to value their data, when they're like, what am I going to do with it? I can't sell it directly. You wouldn't write a book and then go down to the bookstore and be like, hey, you can have this for free and you can sell it. You wouldn't like write a song or an album and do that. You wouldn't make a movie and do that. And so I think it's kind of ridiculous, especially Reddit. Like Reddit's really obvious. Like metadata is kind of nebulous for people. But with Reddit, these are people who have literally like written blog posts, written comments, made comic strips, and like used Reddit to find new audiences. And Reddit is literally just like, oh, this is mine now. Thanks. $203 million. Thanks, bro. We're not paying you anything. In fact, you have to bribe us to get rid of ads. It's just, it, it infuriates me so much. But on a more tangible note, I, I think the reminder here is just that you got to be careful what you put out there because once you do, it's not yours anymore. Every website says that in their terms of service. Once you put that data on Twitter and Facebook and Reddit and Discord, it's it's theirs now. They can do whatever they want with it. Right. I think this actually reminds me a little bit of the Instagram situation, which is like you don't really own your photos on Instagram and people 
pretty much make their entire lives revolve around Instagram photography. Um, and I find that really interesting because Instagram, Facebook, Meta, whatever the hell you want to call them, pretty much has direct access and they have rights to those photos to some extent. And so I think people don't really think about how what they upload to some of these social media platforms doesn't truly belong to them, but they do a very good job of making it feel like they belong to you and it's your data. And that's why you see a lot of the wording of like, we want you put, to put you in control and make you feel like you have control of your data. But a lot of that's very superficial. And I guess what's interesting for me is we have our forum and then it's like, well, how does that tie into something like a forum, like a closed off forum? And why is that different than a big tech company? I guess that's the question going through my head that I thought of as we were going through this. And I guess, yes, there's still the theory, like or not the theory, there's still like the possibility of, I guess that data being utilized for something else because anything that you put out in the public, I guess somebody can go read. I guess we, actually there's an interesting, inter- very interesting thread right now going on. I think because of this Reddit thing on our forum, which is people asking, should we have the robots metadata thing for our website to pretty much tell AI not to scrape our website? And there's actually a really interesting debate going on about this, which is if all AI models can benefit and give people better information because of the information on this forum, is that not a net gain? But also people are saying, well, we want the information consolidated and staying here. So it's kind of this interesting back and forth of like, I don't know, when is it okay for data to be used for other purposes and when is it not? And I think it's interesting. I'm thinking about it still. It's a thing I'm processing. (laughs) Nate and I just got into a little debate. Patrons will get that. But we're going to move on now into the data breaches to not kill everybody's time here. And we're going to start with Insomniac Games alert employees hit by ransomware data breaches. So Sony subsidiary Insomniac Games is sending data breach notification letters to employees whose personal information was stolen and leaked online following a Residia ransomware attack in November. The game studio's most recent project is Marvel's Spider-Man 2, released for the PS5 and is currently working on Marvel's Wolverine for the same platform. The leaked files include many ID scans and internal documents, such as contract information and licensing agreements with Marvel and NVIDIA, as well as screenshots of their game's upcoming Wolverine game. As claimed on Residia's site, the threat actors have only leaked 98% of the files they stole from the studio after selling the rest to the highest bidder. It was actually kind of a short week for data breaches, so... That's all we have. We're now going to move into companies and we're going to start with some good news. Apple's iMessage is getting post-quantum encryption. Cupertino is announcing that PQ3, its post-quantum cryptographic protocol, will be included in iMessage. The update will launch in iOS and iPad OS 17.4 and Mac OS 14.4 after previously being deployed in the beta versions of the software. While practical quantum computing technology may still be years or decades away, security officials, tech companies, and governments are ramping up their efforts to start using a new generation of post-quantum cryptography. And Apple said, we rebuilt the iMessage cryptographic protocol from the ground up. They say that the upgrade will fully replace its existing encryption protocols by the end of the year, and you don't need to do anything other than update your OS for the new protections to be applied. They also detailed how PQ3 has been built and how it operates. The company says that PQ3 creates a new post-quantum encryption key as part of the public keys that phones and computers using iMessage create and transmit to Apple servers. The company is using the Kyber algorithm, which is the same one that Signal was based on. And it will generate keys from the first message that is sent, even if the person receiving the message is offline. And then quoting them again, to best protect end-to-end encrypted messaging, the post-quantum keys need to change on an ongoing basis to place an upper bound on how much of a conversation can be exposed by any single point-in-time key compromise, both now and with future quantum computers. The protections are in addition to existing encryption, Apple says. It is using a hybrid design that combines its current elliptic curve cryptography with the newer post-quantum protections. Meredith on Mastodon, who's like the president of Signal, actually made a formal 
thread talking about this iMessage feature. I'm going to loosely quote it, but pretty much it's like, good job to Apple. This is a big improvement. Um, and the reason why Signal doesn't have this yet is they're actually looking a little bit further ahead and they're finding a better way of implementing this, which just hasn't been done yet. So pretty much she doesn't think that this is actually up to the standard of what Signal wants to achieve for post-quantum. And so they're looking a little bit differently at this situation, but we can leave a link to that. Next one is from Blue Sky, which, oh my gosh, I feel like I haven't heard anything about them for a year, but Blue Sky is that Twitter competitor that's supposed to be defederated, which is finally actually now defederated. Crazy. It's going to let anyone run their own server, and it's similar to Mastodon, but in very different ways. A new Google Chrome feature blocks attacks against home networks. Google plans to prevent bad websites on the internet from attacking a visitor's device, such as a printer or a router in your home or on your computer. So this comes from Bleeping Computer, and they are notoriously not afraid to get into the technical details. If you want said technical details, be sure to check out the article, but we're just going to kind of give you the broad strokes here. Under this new proposal, when the browser detects that a public site attempts to connect to an internal device, the browser will send a pre-flight request to the device first. If there is no response, the connection will be blocked. However, if the internal device responds, it can tell the browser whether the request should be allowed. This allows requests to devices on an internal network to be automatically blocked unless the device explicitly allows for the connection from public websites. And for the record, they do point out this is, you know, like with most things, this is going to be disabled by default. It'll do the check, but it'll still let it go through if it doesn't get a response. And then once they've kind of worked out the bugs, they'll switch it so it blocks it by default. The motivation behind this development is to prevent malicious websites on the internet from exploiting flaws on devices and servers in users' internal networks, which were presumed safe from internet-based threats. This includes protection against unauthorized access to routers and software interfaces running on local devices. A growing concern is more applications deploy web interfaces, assuming non-existent protections. Big Brother satellite capable of zooming in on anyone, anywhere from space, and it's set to launch in 2025. And privacy experts say, we should be worried. This is from a listener. I guess the story seems a little bit weird, but uh, it seems like it is a legit story. So this is from a startup company called Albedo, Albedo, and it's so high quality can zoom in on people or license plates from space, raising concerns among experts that it will create a big brother is always watching scenario. And they claim the satellite won't have facial recognition software, but doesn't mention that it will refrain from Im imaging people or protecting people's privacy. They signed two separate million dollar contracts with the US Air Force and a National Air and Space Intelligence Center to help the government monitor potential threats to US national security. Security. The majority of satellites are orbiting about 160 kilometers or 100 miles to 2,000 kilometers or 1,242 miles away from Earth, and all can currently home in on objects that are about 30 centimeters in diameter. From this distance, satellites can only view things like street signs and the tail numbers on aircraft, but Albedo's aims to zoom in even closer. The company's satellites will create images that are only 10 centimeters in diameter. So of course, they always try to say that this can be used for life-saving measures, like helping authorities map disaster zones. But, of course, that's probably not going to be its only use case. And so experts are concerned that they will be instead be used to track individuals and affect people's privacy. The smaller centimeter imagery means the images won't be as pixelated, allowing those using the satellite to view objects, places, and people with more accuracy. The satellites use an intuitive interface to monitor and track trends for existing imagery and its cloud-centric delivery pipeline, which can collect information in under an hour. A co-founder addressed concerns that the satellites would destroy people's rights to privacy in a public forum, writing that the company is acutely aware of the privacy implications and potential for abuse and misuse, and expects it to be an ongoing, evolving issue over time. He confirmed that the satellite's 10 centimeter resolution will be able to identify people, but then claimed the company will only approve customers on a case-by-case -case basis and will build robust internal tools to find bad actors, as well as the obvious measures of adding punitive clauses to our terms and conditions. And our last company story is a quick one. Wise camera glitch gave 13,000 users a peek into other homes. 
The company blames a third-party caching client library that was recently added to the systems, which had problems dealing with a large number of cameras that came online all at once after a widespread outage on February 16th. Multiple customers have been reporting seeing other users' video feeds under the Events tab in the app since Friday, with some even advising other customers to turn off the cameras until these ongoing issues are fixed. Wise says this happened because of a sudden increase of demand and led to the mixing of device IDs and user ID mappings, causing the erroneous connection of certain data with incorrect user accounts. So I went looking to see if this was fixed or not. I couldn't find anything. I did find one article that pointed out this is Wise's second incident like this, so this is not the first time they've had people able to see other people's feeds. The Verge said that Wise shut off the events tab temporarily as a mitigation. So if you're a Wise user, number one, I think you should probably reconsider that at this point. And number two, if your events tab is back, I would just assume that means it's fixed. Now we're going into the research section, and we're going to start with how your fingerprints can be recreated from the sounds made when you swipe on a touchscreen. Again, I'm going to preface this by saying this is one of these more hypothetical risks that don't probably need to apply to everybody. But the following tests that the researchers assert that they can successfully attack up to 27.9 of partial fingerprints and 9.3% of complete fingerprints within five attempts at the highest security FAR, which is false acceptance rate setting of 0.01%. This is claimed to be the first work that leverages swiping sounds to infer fingerprint information. The print listener paper says that finger swiping friction sounds can be captured by attackers online with a high possibility. The source of the finger swiping sounds can be popular apps like Discord, Skype, WeChat, FaceTime, etc. Any chatty app where users carelessly perform swiping actions on the screen while the device mic is live. All right, so this next one's an actual research paper. It's about 30 pages long, but it's worth a read. And the title says, Data Brokers and the Sale of Students' Data. And I'm just going to go ahead and quote the abstract at the beginning. This report investigates the protection and vulnerability of student data within the data brokerage ecosystem. It specifically examines the privacy and policy impacts of the sale of student data and whether students are equipped to protect their own data. First, it examines the existing research on the topic, analyzes additional information about data brokers selling and monetizing data about students, and looks at gaps in the U.S. law and regulations. If finds that data brokers are gathering and selling a wide variety of data points about students in the U.S., including data about students under the age of 18. Then it presents the results of a survey of college students about the sale of their own data and how they feel about this practice. It concludes with discussing how this practice harms students and how U.S. policymakers can fill the gaps. Politics section, and this one I'm very happy to see, but the FTC has another crackdown, and this time it's with the antivirus company Avast for selling browsing data for advertising purposes. The volume of data Avast released is staggering. The complaint alleges that by 2020, JumpShot had amassed more than 8 petabytes of browsing information dating back to 2014. Avast data feeds include unique identifiers for each web browser and a combination of information on every website visited, timestamps, type of device and browser, as well as the user's city, state and country. When describing its data sharing practices, the company also falsely claimed that it would only transfer the user's personal information in an aggregate and anonymous form. The FTC also said Avast stored its information indefinitely and sold it to over 100 third parties between 2014 and 2020 through their JumpShot subsidiary. Apple warns Australian proposal to force tech companies to scan cloud services could lead to mass surveillance. This comes from a listener. Thank you for sending this our way. Quoting the article, under two mandatory standards aimed at child safety released by the digital regulator last year, the eSafety commissioner proposed that providers should detect and remove child abuse material and pro-terror material, quote, where technically feasible, unquote, as well as disrupt and deter new material of that nature. In Apple's submission to the proposals provided to Guardian Australia, it said that it would offer no such protections, given the assurances were not explicitly included in the final draft standards. 
Quoting what they said, we recommend eSafety adopt a clear and consistent approach expressly supporting end-to-end encryption so that there is no uncertainty and confusion or potential inconsistency across codes and standards. Apple said that such surveillance tools could be reconfigured to search for other content, such as a person's political, religious, health, sexual, or reproductive activities. The company also suggested that scanning people's files and messages could lead to law enforcement circumventing the legal process. Forcing tech companies to implement it would have, quote, far-reaching global repercussions, unquote. Apple has not gone as far as to threaten to withdraw iMessage or iCloud from Australia as it did in the UK when a very similar online safety law was proposed last year. Next one is from Vietnam, who's going to collect biometrics, even DNA, for new ID cards. So the Prime Minister uh, instructed the nation's Ministry of Public Security to collect the data in the form of iris scans, voice samples, and actual DNA in accordance with amendments to Vietnam's Law on Citizen Identification. Amendments to the Law on Citizen Identification that allow collection of biometrics passed on November 27th of last year, which allows recording of blood type among the DNA-related information that will be contained in a national database to be shared across agencies to perform their functions and tasks. Asks. The ID cards are issued to anyone over the age of 14 in Vietnam and are optional for citizens between the ages of 6 and 14, according to a government news report. Future identity cards will incorporate the functions of health insurance cards, social insurance books, driver's licenses, birth certificates, and marriage certificates, as defined by the amendment. There are approximately 70 million people, making the collection and safeguarding of such data no small feat. The reg, or reg is sure the personal information and all the citizens will be just fine. Personal data held by governments for ID cards certainly never leaks. And I'm sure this is a whole thing that clicks to something that does leak. And our last political story, leaked hacking files show Chinese spying on citizens and foreigners alike. So this is kind of a big story that's made the rounds this week. Chinese police are investigating an unauthorized and highly unusual online dump of documents from a private security contractor linked to the nation's top policing agency and other parts of its government, a trove that catalogs apparent hacking activity and tools to spy on both Chinese and foreigners. Among the apparent targets of tools provided by the impacted company iSoon includes ethnicities and dissidents in parts of China that have seen significant anti-government protests such as Hong Kong or the heavily Muslim region of, I, oh God, I've never actually seen this word before, Xinjiang in China's far west. I think that's where a lot of the Uyghurs are. The dump includes hundreds of pages of contracts, marketing presentations, product materials, and client and employee lists. They reveal in detail methods used by Chinese authorities to surveil dissidents overseas, hack other nations, and promote pro-Beijing narratives on social media. The documents show apparent ISOON hacking of networks across Central and Southeast Asia, as well as Hong Kong and the self-ruled island of Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its territory. The hacking tools are used by Chinese state agents to unmask users to social media platforms outside China, such as X, formerly known as Twitter, break into email, and hide the online activity of overseas agents. Also described are devices disguised as power strips and batteries that can be used to compromise Wi-Fi networks. FOSS, free and open source. And big exciting news that I think a lot of people are excited about, which is you can now keep your phone number private with Signal usernames. So it's kind of two big releases comboed into one because it's kind of the same issue that requires two releases. So the first one is we have a new default on Signal, which is your phone number will no longer be visible to everyone on Signal. So if you meet someone in public and you add them on Signal, they won't see your phone number by default, which is awesome because now you can contact with people without sharing your phone number. You can still have the option of sharing that phone number, but it's not guaranteed. You don't have to anymore. Now, the other thing is you can connect without sharing your phone number. And so, because obviously, like, how do you add the person if you're not going to see their phone number? And so that's with a username now. So now you can get a username and claim it. And that's how you add people on Signal. You can still use the phone number if you choose to, but keep in mind that username is not actually like a handle, like you might see on something like Discord. That username is just how you add the person. And from there on out, it's your profile information that people will see. 
So in theory, if you join a group chat, for example, other people in the group chat won't be able to know your username because you didn't like directly get their username. You're just in a group chat with them. So this isn't beta right now. It's going to be probably released in public sometime in the next several weeks, couple months. We'll see what happens there. I haven't seen a formal timeline, but it is in beta. The iOS beta is closed because of a lot of people that I'm sure updated just to claim a username. If you're not on iOS, you should be able to still get the beta. And I think they said you can do it on desktop, but I don't know if you can claim a username on desktop yet. I haven't heard that from anybody. You can. Okay, there you go. You can. I did it on my personal account. There you go. Once these features reach everyone, both you and the people you're chatting with on Signal will need to be using the most updated version of the app to take advantage of them. Each version of the Signal app expires after about 90 days, after which people on the older version will need to update to the latest version of Signal. This means that in about 90 days, your phone number privacy settings will be honored by everyone using an official Signal app. And importantly, again, this is all optional. So even if for whatever reason, you don't have to do any of it, just turn it off and continue with what you've been doing with Signal. And if you don't like any of this still because it still requires a phone number, you still don't want to register the phone number, there are still other messenger options that you can look into if privacy and anonymity are a bigger concern of yours. Um, and that jeopardizes that for you. So I made a whole video covering this if people want to see it. Proton says, we're upgrading our free plan. Instead of sharing one gigabyte between files and emails, you'll now have five gigabytes for Proton Drive and one gigabyte for mail. That's the entire post. So some of the replies that I saw are suggesting that this is kind of one of those like checklists you have to complete things. Like, you know, sometimes you sign up for a new service and it's like, hey, you know, download our app and get some more storage and invite a friend and get some storage or whatever. We're both paying users as far as I know. So I don't think we can like confirm or deny that that's how it works, but that's just the rumor. And I think it only applies to new users, possibly. A spam attack on Twitter slash X rival Mastodon, which highlights Fediverse vulnerabilities. Essentially, there's some vulnerabilities that allow people to generate just tons of accounts on different home servers on Mastodon. Anyone can host a server and essentially connect to Mastodon in a way. And so people are essentially finding Mastodon servers, creating random accounts on them, and then spamming tons of other home servers. Essentially, attacks like these have happened in the past, but not on the scale of this one. And this was fully automated when the attackers learned they could script spam, uh, which caused a dispute between two sides on Discord, where one side was trying to get the other size Discord server banned. According to reports on Mastodon, I don't even know. I just don't want to be spammed. <laughs> but it does highlight some weaknesses of how the Fediverse is structured because Mastodon's smaller servers are often hobbyist projects run by enthusiasts who are vulnerable in this sort of attack, which essentially jeopardized everybody else who's actually doing things properly. So Mastodon has since released an update that moves unmaintained servers to approval required signups if the admin hasn't logged in within a certain amount of time. And there's not much you can do about existing instances, but hopefully that'll help going forward. I will say on an individual basis, I think you can turn off notifications for people who don't follow you. And that's a good way to have prevented this specific spam attack. On a similar note, Discord took no action against a server that coordinated costly Mastodon spam attacks. Essentially, that the this whole attack was coordinated through Discord and the software was distributed through Discord and they were using bots that integrated with Discord <laughs> such that user didn't even need to set up any servers or anything like that. You could just join us and spam people on Discord. And Discord said that Discord's terms of service specifically prohibit platform abuse, which refers to activities that disrupt or alter the experience of Discord users, including spam or sending unsolicited bulk messages or interactions. The Discord says it is monitoring the situation. The server responsible for the spam attacks remains online. I'm smiling for those on the audio podcast. Yeah, I find that very interesting, is all. I find that interesting. <laughs> and our last FOSS story comes from... JMP chat, 
who says mobile friendly gateway to any SIP provider. So basically, long story short, they are now, if I understood this article correctly, they are creating a Docker package for you to run your own Chiogram server to run your own JMP chat server. I'll just quote the first paragraph. We, for a long time, have supported the public Chiogram SIP instance, which allows easy interaction between Federated Jabber Network and the Federated SIP Network. When it comes to connecting the phone network via SIP provider, however, very few of these providers choose to interact with the Federated SIP Network at all. It has always been possible to work around this with a self-hosted PBX, but documentation on the best way to do this is scant. We've also heard from some that they would like to host the gateway themselves to be easier, as increasingly people are familiar with Docker and not with other packaging formats. So we have sponsored the development of a Docker packaging solution for the full Chigram SIP solution, including an easy ability to connect to an unfederated SIP server. Misfits. So 70,000 AT&T customers were without service this morning across the US. Again, we normally record on Fridays is our goal. And so when I say this morning, what was that? Yesterday? Yeah, so Thursday. But that's really it. It's fixed. Nate apparently couldn't call or text people at his day job. Big sad. Nate said here it's a good argument in favor of both VOIP, but also in favor of resiliency. I would say, yeah, VOIP would have prevented like an entire infrastructure meltdown like this, but also a VOIP service could also be shut down. Like the server can be down. So, you know, things can happen to VOIP services as well. And so I think the real core goal here is resiliency, which is how do you contact people if your core messenger is down, have contingency plans, have backup plans, and have other ways of communicating if you can't contact them. We've seen situations where signals down. We've seen situations where lots of things are down. So nothing's immune to this problem. Uh, everything just works until it doesn't. So figure out what to do now before it's too late. All right, our next story is about the LockBit takedown. LockBit got taken down by law enforcement. Actually, I'll just quote the article. A sweeping law enforcement operation led by the UK's National Crime Agency this week took down LockBit, the notorious Russia-linked ransomware gang that for years has wreaked havoc on businesses, hospitals, and governments around the world. The action saw LockBit's leak site down, its server seized, multiple arrests made, and US government sanctions applied to what is one of the most significant operations taken against a ransomware group to date. So they said six things we learned, but there were two in specific that I found interesting. The first one says, LockBit didn't delete victims' data even if they paid. It has long been suspected that paying a hacker's ransom demand is a gamble and not a guarantee that stolen data will be deleted. Some corporate victims have even said as such, saying they cannot guarantee that their data would be erased. The LockBit takedown has given us confirmation that this is absolutely the case. The article's real short. It didn't really say anything more than that. The other one I found interesting says LockBit has hacked more than 2,000 organizations. I don't remember what number they were up to prior to this, so I don't know what the discrepancy was between what we knew and what we didn't know. It has long been known that LockBit, which first entered the competitive cybercrime scene in 2019, is one of, if not the most prolific ransomware gangs. Tuesday's operation all but confirms that. Now the U.S. Justice Department has numbers to back it up. According to the DOJ, LockBit has claimed over 2,000 victims in the U.S. and worldwide and received more than $120 million in ransom payments. But I'm assuming the reported number was a lot lower, and this is just kind of a confirmation that like companies aren't always going to report it. They're just going to pay it and hope that nobody finds out. Cough, cough, Uber. So keep that in mind. Last story for the week, vending machine error reveals secret face imaging database of college students. This is a scandal, and it started when a student using the alias SquidKid47 posted an image on Reddit showing a campus vending machine error message in Venda vending facial recognition app dot executable. 
displayed after the machine failed to launch a facial recognition application that nobody expected to be part of the process of using a vending machine. But it gets deeper. So the Reddit post sparked an investigation from a fourth year student named River Stanley, who was writing for a university publication. Stanley sounded alarm after consulting Avenda sales brochures that promised the machines are capable of sending estimated ages and genders of every person who used the machines without ever requesting consent. Stanley discovered that Canada's privacy commissioner had years ago investigated a small shopping mall operator called Cadillac Fairview after discovering some of the mall's informational kiosks were secretly using facial recognition software on unsuspecting patrons. Only because of that official investigation did Canadians learn that over 5 million non-consenting Canadians were scanned into Cadillac Fairview's database. Where Cadillac Fairview was ultimately forced to delete the entire database, Stanley wrote that the consequences for collecting similarly sensitive facial recognition data without consent for Invenda clients like Mars, aka the vending machine I assume, remain unclear. A University of Waterloo spokesperson eventually responded, confirming that the school had asked to disable the vending machine software until the machines could be removed. Students said that their confidence in the university's administration was shaken by the controversy, and some students claimed on Reddit that they attempted to cover the vending machine's cameras while waiting for the school to respond using gum or post-it notes. One student pondered whether there are other places the technology could be used on campus. Adaria Vending Services said that what's most important to understand is that the machines do not take or store any photos or images, and an individual person cannot be identified using the technology in the machines. The technology acts as a motion sensor that detects faces so the machine knows when to activate the purchasing interface, never taking or storing images of customers. These machines are fully GDPR compliant and are in use in many facilities across North America, is what their official statement is. And they also say they do not collect any data about its users and does not have any access to identify users of these M&M vending machines. And that was all we had this week. Thanks for staying with us. So Reddit is going public and we're starting to see some of that data get sold already. Signal finally has usernames. If you don't have access to the beta, don't worry. I think I read somewhere that they're hoping to have it in production by March or like sometime in March. So that should be coming hopefully in the next couple of weeks here. iMessage is getting post quantum encryption for all the iPhone users out there. And Lockbit is no more. Lockbit is no mas and many, many more stories. And as always, we will keep you updated as we learn more. In the meantime, if you want to keep this podcast going, we have Patreon, $5 a month or more. You get to be part of our Q&A segment, $10 a month or more, and you get the extended version where we definitely had a lot of conversations and back and forth this week. We'll see how much of that stays in, but I'm sure a good chunk of it will. So there's a lot to unlock there. If you are not a fan of Patreon, totally understand. We have LibrePay. And last but not least, we always have Monero. So if you're looking for the most private and secure way to contribute to the podcast, Monero would be the way to do that. For those of you who cannot afford anything financially right now, totally get it. My grocery bill was insane this week. There's always sharing the podcast around. There's, you know, we have the surveillance clips channel. If there's like a specific story you want to share with someone, liking, subscribing, commenting, all those little things that help the algorithm. So thank you guys so much for helping spread the word around. Thank you guys for listening. If you're not subscribed, make sure you subscribe, give us a rating, all that fun stuff. Thank you guys for trying to protect your privacy and stay safe out there. And we'll see you next week.